The Free For All Roundtable. Round two. On the panel, the uh, aforementioned and heard Brad Bradford is here, Toronto City Councillor, lawyer, professor, activist Pamela Palmater is here as well, and Max Valiquette, an old friend of the show, advertising and marketing guy. Good to have you all. And let's start with housing, actually, not only because it's an important issue, but because Brad Bradford kind of specializes in this whole thing. I'll start with you on this one. Uh, you were on the losing end of this vote yesterday on City Council. Yeah, yesterday we had the mayor's plan to become the largest uh, public builder in the country. And uh, I, I tried to put some guardrails around that. I just, you know. What kind of guardrails? Well, look, I, I think that there's a role for us to play in the housing sector. We're very good at zoning land, getting sites ready to go. We have that experience. We have that expertise in-house. But the idea of us becoming a general contractor or a construction manager, that's best left to folks outside of the city with the expertise. So the guardrails I put up was really just stating that we will not become the general contractor. We will not become the construction manager. And unfortunately, that was voted down by my colleagues in a 10 to 15 vote. And so we're left with you know, still a lot of questions about what exactly a public builder means at the City of Toronto. And we're also left with an ask of over $30 billion to other levels of government to pay for the mayor's plan. Max Valiquette, the argument raised by those who believe in this program is that builders aren't interested in executing these kinds of properties, so the city's going to have to do it. Yeah, which I think is a very fair argument to make. I mean, I live relatively downtown in Toronto and was driving by Young and Bloor a couple days ago, and I'm constantly reminded of how private builders don't seem to be interested in this necessarily either and can't necessarily finish the things that they are interested in. If you've driven by one Bloor, you know what I'm talking oh, yeah. about. So, uh, you know, although I'm, I'm anxiously looking forward to 2028 when we'll be in phase nine of the Marvel Universe and one Bloor will finally be complete. That's, so that's, I think there's a, there's a uh, you know, it's obviously an extremely complicated issue, but we're probably not looking at anything more necessary for the continued functioning of this city than affordable housing for more people. And I think there will be solutions that are private sector driven. I think there will be solutions that are public sector driven. And I like seeing the city trying to take some dramatic action to fix this problem. That's a really good example, though, the one Bloor site, which we can all see sort of... It's not exactly affordable housing. No, and it's and it's sitting there half erect, and it's, uh, it's a major <laughs> issue. Brad, <laughs> I, come on, Brad. I was able to work that in, right? That's the word for the day. Uh, but, but, you know, this is a challenge, right? And the, the world that we're heading in now is the uncertainty around financing, the uncertainty around construction costs, the inflation, all the shortages of labor and trades. We're going to now absorb that risk as the city of Toronto. And that's why we've always used a partnership model, partnering with the great builders here across the city and the private sector to build housing, to build affordable units within those market-oriented development. And uh, it's been about managing risk for the tax taxpayers. And right now, other than a a $30 billion ask, we don't have a lot of certainty of how this is going to get paid for. Yeah, Pamela, to repeat the point I was making and going to uh, Max, the problem would seem to be builders love building houses with gardens and pools. They're not that interested in 65,000 rental units. Exactly. And that's the problem. And had there been a public-private partnership or just builders building affordable housing, we wouldn't be having this conversation. But we all know from the data that 
builders don't want to build affordable housing. They can't make exorbitant profits on things like this. So we have no other choice. Canada said housing is a human right. The United Nations said housing is a human right. There are a multitude of problems that could be addressed with safe, affordable housing. And I don't just mean affordable housing for middle class. I mean for like rent controlled housing and rent that's targeted to income for people who are living under the poverty line despite working two or three jobs. This is something, what's the worst that can happen? I mean, take a risk, try to help people. I think the worst that can happen is... Eglinton Crosstown? Yeah. I don't know. Well, yeah, there's a government-led project. Uh, but I, I think the worst thing that can happen is nothing. Uh, we dedicate all this time and resources, city resources, have them rowing in a completely different direction, and, and we struggle to, to deliver on 65,000 units. We haven't even been able to come anywhere close to our previous target of 40,000, and now we just piled on another 25,000 and said we're going to do it ourselves. So I hope I'm wrong on this, but I, you know, I think when you look at local government, um, you generally don't see us doing it for less and doing it faster. So time will tell. There are several stories this morning that kind of are the same story. We have uh, Rosie DeMano's column, which is headlined, The City is a Tinderbox. She's writing about how anxious and angry people are. We have Toronto police increasing the size of their hate crime unit. And we have federal MPs who have had their security boosted. Pamela Palmiter, I'll start with you. I agree with Rosie DeMano. You can sense it in the air. This is a city on edge, and all because of a conflict that is happening thousands of kilometers away. Yeah, well, I think it's an important one. Nothing has ever come good in human society without ever having this kind of uh, conflict. And when I say conflict, I mean this social conflict, this discomfort, this uncertainty about what's happening. And it's almost always related to human rights. Think of the civil rights movement, the women's rights movement, the indigenous rights movement. There was always this tension and people upset on either side. There's always the extremes. But I mean, for the most part, you see people, millions of people around the world saying, you know what, we, we actually have to care for just the basics of human rights. You know, we can't be going around committing genocide or war crimes, no matter what the uh, original trigger is. We need to make sure that people from all countries, from all faiths, all race, all backgrounds are safe and secure. And people are concerned that that's not happening. Okay, but Max Valaket, even listening to Pamela frame things like that, I know I'm going to be inundated with angry texts from people. Everybody's angry all the time right now. Yeah, and we're dealing with a long-standing, ongoing conflict, which has, I, I think, as one of one of the things that marks it more maybe than anything else right now, is a a a, a feeling of constantly when you hear people talk about it, everyone wants to say, okay, but on the other side is this, okay, but on the other side is this. What it's not marked by enough on our personal and individual interactions is first and foremost listening to what someone is saying before we start with our own immediate reaction. So look, there's no great single answer to how to prevent a rise in hate crimes or how to prevent a rise in hate speech. What I think as individual people we can be doing is looking for the signs of this, shutting down actual hate 
when it happens, but also making sure that more than anything else, we are listening to the people in our lives because some of them are trying to tell us that they themselves are personally affected by hate speech, by symbols, uh, by the rise in, uh, in these things more than some of the rest of us may be. Check in on your friends and ask them how they are doing because it's fundamentally legitimately traumatic for some of us. Some of us come on the radio and we get to talk about this stuff and have, I would say, a little less skin in the game than others do. So it's 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 a difficult issue to solve, obviously. I mean, we're seeing the conflict itself and everything that comes from it. But remember that a rise in hate speech and a rise in hate crimes has an impact on people around you who are legitimately traumatized by this. Well, Brad Bradford, one of the issues for me anyway is you know, as Rosie DeMano writes today, what is hate speech? Is the wearing of a kafia a threat? Is asserting that perhaps the, the death toll amongst uh, Palestinians is now over 10,000? You know, some people say, well, why don't you talk about the, you know, the, the missing hostages? Anything becomes incendiary. Yeah. And, you know, as was just said, this is a very sensitive, red hot issue for folks. But Rosie's column is excellent. If folks haven't read it yet, it's it's worth your time. It's it's scary out there for a lot of people. Um, you know, I've heard from folks in the in the Jewish community. They have direct relatives, friends, families over there and, and same for folks in the Palestinian community. So it becomes very personal and it becomes emotional. And sometimes it's uh, it, it's hard to have absolute objective when we're talking about these issues. But, you know, as local government, as, as someone here in the city of Toronto, the rise in hate crimes is deeply disturbing. The difficulty around providing an absolute definition and how to enforce those things versus infringing on free, free speech, that is complicated. I think our police are doing a tremendous job and they're allocating the resources going up from six officers in the hate crime unit to 20. But it's also a sad state of affairs when that is necessary, when you're having to, you know, triple the, the size of that that unit and pour those resources in because that reflects the circumstances on the ground here in Toronto and it's just awful to see. One of the other things being debated on Toronto City Council is Etobicoke's coat of arms and just to remind people what it looks like it is there's a crest in the center which is full of leafy goodness there is an indigenous person shirtless on one side and it says tradition and then there is a settler on the other side and it says as progress. And so it's been deemed that perhaps this is insensitive to Indigenous people. Let me turn to an Indigenous person on the panel, Pamela Palmiter. Uh, it only dates back to 1977, so it's not exactly undoing the heritage fabric of the city of Toronto. No, exactly. And people always freak out about these things as if history is just going to magically disappear or their city is going to crumble when these things happen. Um, there's lots of these really racist crests all over the U.S. and in parts of Canada. And it, it's an old racist trope that's always been said somehow we're uh, focused on tradition and we're backwards and we're primitive and and everything about European settlers is progress and civilization and I just I, I don't think there's any place for that anymore it's racist it doesn't send the right message it's more than just a little insensitive and it kind of reminds me of that crest that was in Whitesboro where you have a, a white settler pilgrim literally choking out a native person and that was their crest and I'm thinking 
in this day and age, can we not just get rid of this stuff? Is this going to consume very much time on council today, Brad? I hope not. Um, I wasn't even aware that this was coming forward today and was going to be on the floor. Yeah. Um, you know, Pamela's right. I don't think it's a huge deal uh, to, to look at this thing. We have heard from the community that it's offensive. We should listen to the community. And, and look, there are bigger franchises than us, uh, you know, formerly Cleveland Indians, now Cleveland Guardians, formerly Washington Miguel Redskins. Redmond, yeah. yeah, now now commanders. Uh, so you see sports franchises looking at this stuff, making the change. And again, listen to the community. If this is offensive, uh, we need to revisit that as the city of Toronto. And Max Valaket with the last word on this one. It's part of a tradition of depicting Indigenous people uh, through a sort of, well, a colonial lens, but also just patronizing them. Yeah, and we have an an, uh, an indigenous person on on this panel who's who speaks to that much better than I can. So I don't I don't need to take oxygen from her. All I'll say is uh, is two things. One is it, it's it's I'm I'm older than this coat of arms, and so for for Councilor Hall <laughs> to, to 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 suggest that it's super important to the people of Etobicoke, it's not. And I hate hearing stuff like that. But listen, if you're making changes more slowly than former Washington football team owner Daniel Snyder, I think y- you know automatically you're in the wrong. <laughs> All right. Well, the counselor, Stephen Holliday, we tracked him down. He's going to join us after the news. Catch the roundtable, round one at 745, round two at 845. Weekday mornings on More in the Morning. News Talk 1010 Toronto.